Hey, and welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. I am so glad to be with you here today, uh, this Friday morning here for me in Colorado. Um, today on the uh, the episode, we are going to be talking with Dr. Owen Anderson. I'm really excited to have Dr. Anderson on. Um, he is the uh, he's a professor at Arizona State University. He's been teaching there for uh, 21 years. Professor of Philosophy and Religious Studies. Also teaches at Phoenix Seminary. Uh, research focuses on general revelation and lots of questions about reality, value, knowledge. I mean, these are very weighty topics, deep topics, the kind of topics when you get into a classroom and you're like, oh boy, did I sign up for the wrong thing? This is going to be super heady. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he teaches in a really understandable way. In fact, he actually offers, uh, I think it's epistemological consultations, which is great. He's been a (laughs) fellow at uh, Princeton University, visiting scholar there at Princeton Seminary, fellow at the University of Colorado Boulder, which was great because I got to meet him for lunch uh, while he was up here this summer, and he teaches philosophy of religion, introduction to philosophy, applied ethics, world religions, Western religious traditions, and religion in America. So lots of great talent he's got. I'm really excited to have him on the program. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for spending time with me uh, this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about natural theology together. Yeah, it'll be great. Um, you know, before we get into it, kind of an intro to to kind of who you are. Obviously, you're kind of well-established in your your field. Uh, it's awesome, as a especially as a Christian uh, kind of thinker. You're at Arizona State. You're you're uh, doing a lot Sun of good devil. work there. The Sun Devil, ironically enough, <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit of a conflict there. Um, tell me about kind of your 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 background. How did you get into this? I mean, obviously, you stu- Arizona State was kind of like your place. Uh, yeah, you've been there for a while. So, what's it been like? So I, I got interested in the kinds of questions I study in high school. And I was uh, real, I, I, you know, raised with Christian beliefs, but came, came to see that I, I don't really know if they're true. I had friends in high school who had different beliefs, and, and we tended to have arrived at our beliefs in the same way. Like mm. our parents taught us that, or we're in a community. And so, that's not really proof then, right? That those same those same things could lead to different conclusions. So I started to wonder, well, how do I really know? And and just that question to myself led me down to where I'm at today. Like, so how do, how do I know? Yeah. Um, I believe it. I believe it responsibly, uh, properly, etc. But it could still be false. So I started uh, asking that question. I found out there's a whole field that deals with that called philosophy. And that you can get paid to teach it. So I said, all right, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I ended up pursuing degrees at ASU and kept getting more offers for another degree. And then I finished my PhD and uh, got offered a job. So I said, yeah, I mean, I'll stick around and keep teaching it. I've been able to study um, Reformed theology at, at, at ASU, right? So Reformed theology, guys like Charles Hodge, Benjamin Warfield. I've been able to study the proofs for God's existence and the problem of evil. So if if the Sun Devils let you do that, then great, right? That's right. Uh, found, found a nice home. But the uh, my dissertation was especially on not just if we can prove that God exists, but are we responsible to know that God exists? Is it clear that God exists so that unbelief is without excuse? And what would what would it take to say unbelief is without excuse? Mm. So that was really my interest. And sometimes that's called the ethics of belief. Mm. Like what, what are you, we mostly maybe we think of ethics as about our conduct. 
Like it's unethical to take money from work. You take home a stapler from work. That's unethical. Sure. Uh, but there's also ethics of belief. There are some things you should believe or know. Mm. And God's existence is one of those, especially if the Christians say unbelief is a sin. Yeah. And it's a sin that requires the death of Christ. Well, then if it's a sin, you, you should know better, so to speak, should know God. So that was kind of the focus of my dissertation. And I've continued to work on that kind of problem, which is what, what, what brings me to, to general revelation. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, this is a huge apologetic issue. Um, it's one that comes up over and over again uh, in ministry and, and just kind of life. I mean, it kind of haunts you when you think about uh, the reality of that sin. Uh, when you think about the various people in the world and uh, typically the question is posed in such a way that it's like, what about a tribe or a people on the other side of the world who have never either uh, been given yeah. uh, the word or, or heard the gospel? Are they, uh, are they, can, are they seen uh, viewed by God as condemned? Are they condemned by God? Yeah. Yeah. That's usually where the question comes up for people. And a lot of times they'll make some kind of, answer that involves special revelation which is scripture and so here's the problem let's set the problem up you can't be condemned simply for having not heard of or having rejected scripture because scripture is about what to do for already being condemned when you come to scripture you're told repent for the kingdom of god is at hand so there's already something you've done for which you need to repent. And that includes people who don't even have access to scripture. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't say, well, someone's condemned because they rejected Jesus. No, that's the reverse. They need Jesus because they're already condemned. Mm-hmm. So what are we condemned for? Well, unbelief. Both Paul and the psalmist summarize sin this way. They say, Paul says in Romans 3, 10, 11, sin is not seeking, not understanding, and not doing what is right. And Psalmist says that God looks down to find if anyone is seeking. He finds no one seeking, no one doing anything good. So the human condition post-fall is that we're not seeking God. Mm. And that's, that's our problem, is unbelief. Mm. So quoting Bible verses about how you need to be saved, although possibly true, need to be backed up with a foundational truth, which is that you should have known God, and instead of knowing God, you replaced that knowledge with something else. And hence, then you can look into all the different systems of the world, right, that say, uh, well, maybe matter has always existed, or maybe my soul has always existed. Some version of one of those is usually the common one. Yeah, for sure. It's just a very, uh, very important question. And, and so, just again, you said it was the ethics of belief. Is that what yeah, you're focused on? Yeah, ethics of belief. Okay. What yeah, should, there's some things you should believe. That makes sense. And they do, they do affect your actions. So we can think of some examples like, uh, you know, for what, what should a responsible adult believe about the world? And if a responsible adult doesn't believe one plus one is two, but they want to open a bank account, well, it's going to have some conflict, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's what I mean by clear. Some things are clear about God. Mm-hmm. Mainly this. I mean, just starting with this, the difference between God and not God. That's a clear difference, which is why what, what is called idolatry is wrong. Because you're confusing something that's not God with God. 
And, and I think here's where even that begins. The, most, the clearest thing about God, the difference about God from everything else, is that only God has existed from eternity. Nothing else has. And so you'll see that the various systems that try to put something else in the place of God as eternal. Like I said, there might be a system that says the material universe has just always been there. Or there's systems that say my soul has always been there. Plato thought that. Plato thought your soul has, ex has always existed and has been going through reincarnations. So that's a confusing of something that's very clear. Only God's eternal. And that's culpable ignorance. Hmm. So in contrast to saying everyone currently knows God, which would seem to conflict with what Paul says that no one understands. Everyone currently knows God. That in, in contrast to that, I say, no, everyone's culpably ignorant. They don't understand, and they should. Hmm. That kind of brings me to uh, to a topic we want to discuss, uh, natural theology. Before we do that, one question I have personally um, is kind of the difference between uh, what I typically refer to as epistemology, kind of uh, the way I summarize it as like how we know what we know, yeah, um, and maybe other disciplines like uh, maybe ontology or other approaches to knowledge. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed epistemology, um, and that was kind of a focus for me in my book. Um, but what other what other approaches to kind of how we know what we know are there besides epistemology? Well, I mean, that, that's just really what the word means is is um, how do we know? So that that's like a big umbrella term with lots of different theories in there. But what you might be getting at is that you could study ontology, which is the study of being. And by doing that, that would shape what we can know. But you'd still have, you have an unavoidable basic epistemology, which is once you do ontology and shape how we know, how do you know that's true? Right? So, you yeah. know, it always comes back to that question, how do you know? And it's going to require that you give a proof. So there might be some epistemological systems that say, uh, kind of phrase it the way you just did, which is, how do I know what I know? So I know one plus one is two, but I've never learned mathematical proofs. So how do I know it? Well, in one sense, you know it, because whenever there's a one plus one, you put down two. But in another sense, you don't know it. And, and maybe that's the more important sense, which I would link with understanding. Hmm. You've been trained that two goes after one plus one but you never learn how to actually prove it. So there's a sense in which you can't avoid at the most fundamental level, you're going to be required to give a proof to demonstrate your understanding. Mm. And there might be lots of systems that, that, that define knowledge in a way to avoid that. But then you'll just ask about those. Well, how do you know that's true? So you just can't get away from it at the basic level. You're going to have to be asked the question. Yeah. How do you know God exists? Show me that's true. And you say, well, God made me so that I just automatically start believing in him. Well, how do I know that's true? So you're going to have to learn how to give proofs at some point, which is why I recommend my logic class. I am, I'm uh, selling my, my classes here, right? That's so, great. Yeah, learn logic. Learn how to think. Learn how to give proofs. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, thing to encourage just because it seems, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff may seem dense or... Uh, or maybe for some for some Christians, it almost seems like unnecessary. Like they're more yeah. interested in pragmatism. Like how does it work for me? And that's a mm -hmm. proof in itself. Like spirituality is justified by uh, what's most effective. And that's a very like multi multicultural approach to religion and to how we engage. Like um, 
you know, I, especially in a place like Boulder, you get a lot of kind of buffet style spirituality where it's, I'll take a little bit of each and see what works for me. And if it works for me, that means it's legitimate. Um, and a lot of times these questions can bother people, not because not necessarily a good way either. They can bother people because it's like, why do you care so much? You know, like, why are you trying to, uh, turn over every rock? Uh, why are you, why are you asking so many questions? Just, yeah. can, can we just get along, to, uh, to go along? And, and, uh, so I sense a lot of resistance once you start asking these questions, unless somebody really is a seeker, is a curious person. Mm-hmm. Um, have you experienced that as well? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a few different things you mentioned there with, which are definitely important to talk about. So the pragmatist who says, uh, this works for me. And then you can get that kind of eclecticism that you mentioned where you, this piece of that religion works for me and this piece of that religion works for me. And I lump it together into my own unique blend. But what the pragmatist is saying is this works for me really means this satisfies me. And what satisfies you is not a comment about reality. It's a comment about your assumptions. Mm. So given my assumptions, this, whatever it is, fits well. But what if your assumptions are false? If you change your assumptions, it wouldn't satisfy you anymore. So what we want are true assumptions or presuppositions so that we're satisfied by real things, not fictional things. Right. So that the pragmatist is a question of, yeah, how that, that links up to the next one, which is, well, you, you, you think too much. You live too much up here. You need right. to live down here in the impulse zone. And, uh, that goes back to that pragmatism, right? I, I'm perfectly happy with my life, and I don't think very much. Um, well, I, I mean, are you happy, really? I mean, and, and usually that person begins doing theology or thinking when a crisis happens. It's called the uh, uh, crisis mode of life. So they'll say, I'm happy right now, but then inevitably some big trial of life comes along, and all of a sudden they want to start thinking. But, but imagine that. Imagine you've been going through life not thinking because you're satisfied. And then a major trial comes up that demands the most of you. You won't be able to deliver. Right. You can't get that stuff on the fly. Like you have to have already had that in place when the trial comes up. It's like, I'll be at the Olympics and I'll learn how to sprint. No, you needed to be doing that for the last 10 years. Right. So it's like that a lot in life. Someone will get, uh, you know, have a deathbed experience they're on their deathbed it's almost over they've got a couple weeks months left to think and they don't know how Mm. Mm. that's tough stuff and that's that's what you experience in ministry a lot of times is um yeah you know you probably is crisis right yeah and and you'll get people that come to church what's i think what's what can be a bit frustrating is as a pastor you get people that'll come to church and they they mean well there's nothing wrong with this approach, but for most of us, very consumeristic modern people, they're looking for for uh, for a church that kind of can can help them just kind of go on with their life and give them some interesting nuggets of wisdom to to kind of maybe make their life better. Right. And uh, and sometimes I, I my preaching doesn't lend itself to meet that need in a very tangible way all the time, which I can always right. get better at making theology practical. I was just talking with somebody the other week about all theology should be practical. Yeah. But, uh, but it can be hard to convince people the you know, I don't, I, I don't want anyone to have to live in a constant state of, uh, you know, self-examination in a, in a, in a anxious state. Right. We, we yeah. It could be a way. neurotic sense. Exactly. Of it, at all. What, 
is being proposed. But yeah, yeah, there could no. be that sense where you're just always in a state of anxiety. And but but you do the self-examination to avoid that. Yeah. Not not to live in that forever, but to say you should be anxious when you realize you don't know, and then yeah. you come to know and you're not anxious anymore. For sure. That's great. Uh, but I think what, what you're saying is really important. Think about this. You come to church and it's sort of like a community center. And there's there's four or five community centers near me, and I can look at their fee structure and what they offer, and I'll pick the best one for my family. Whereas that's not what church is for at all. Uh, church is for the worship of God and hearing God's word so you can better worship God. So you go to church assuming God exists. You don't go to church to have that proven to you. You already know God exists. So that's, again, where natural theology comes in. Hmm. And I think the scriptures affirm that the heavens declare the glory of God. And they affirm that the works of God, both in history and in creation, reveal God. So that's what we should know. But the human condition is that we've turned our back on that. We don't know it. Hmm. And it's because of that that we need re redemption in Christ. That's right. Not we need redemption because we rejected Christ. That's just a, that's a logical circle. Right. That's sure. Some people literally get into like with missionary stuff, they get into this idea that you shouldn't do missionary work because by going to people who have never heard, you're increasing their responsibility. Like leave them without ever hearing. I've never heard that. That's they fascinating. When they reject it, now they're in trouble. You 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 ruined their existence. Oh so my gosh. That, that, that weird circle gets into even saying, yeah, don't even do missionary work. Instead of wow. saying, well, no, people are already not seeking Wow. I've never thought of that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess that is a, a really important thing to consider. You you mentioned natural theology. That's something I wanted to hear more about. Um, you know, I, I've heard a lot of these terms uh, when you're when you're in seminary. These are kind of just textbook like you got to memorize them, got to be able to do the exam. Mm -hmm. Don't get really get to spend a lot of time reflecting on natural theology. But natural theology, I think, has been seeing a bit of a, a, a reengagement recently. Um, uh, at least my observation seems to be people are interested in nat natural theology as a bridge between um, people who are Christians, true Christians, um, and then people who are, are not Christians or obviously not Christians. Mm -hmm. And so it's hoped that if we can focus on natural theology, that we can form a lot of bridges and, and places to connect yeah. where we can give a vision for society. Now, that's just kind of a a, a way that I've observed it play out. Yep, but when, you're right. Uh, how would you describe natural theology? What is but, natural theology? Yeah, that's great because that, what you just described is really utilitarian. Like in order to connect with others, I need natural theology. And mm -hmm. what I'm suggesting is in order to even do Christianity, you need natural theology for yourself. So, so the model you gave is someone starts off assuming I know the truth and I need to get that guy over there to know the truth also. And so I'll use natural theology if that helps him. But I, as a sun devil devil's advocate i propose maybe you don't know the truth at all what's mm -hmm. your proof and if you your proof is you can quote some scripture verses at me well that's just a logical fallacy that's begging the question how do you know those are accurate well because it's god's word how do you know there's a god's word because there's a god how do you know because <laughs> the bible says so well no that that's not a proof so right. learn learn to think learn how to give proofs um so that's interesting let me let's think about it in two ways why do we need natural theology and the second one is are we, are, are Christians equipped to spread the gospel? We're told to, uh, Christians are told to make, make disciples of every, na in na every nation, right? Uh, teaching them to observe 
all things have been commanded. And the mm. first commandment is to love God. Mm. You can't love God if you don't even know there's a God. So mm. it all begins there. But it might be that what Christians do mostly is they just go around declaring things. And I think you've had the experience of someone you disagree with, say, say in politics or economics, someone you disagree with just declaring their view to you. That doesn't, does that ever persuade you? No. no. So why would the Christians think that that's going to be an effective tool? So then they might do what you're suggesting, which is they modify it to, well, I'll learn about the other person and I'll modify my message to them. So the other person really likes Tolkien. So I'll talk about how Gandalf is Moses and Frodo's Jesus, and that'll get them interested in the gospel. But again, that, it, that's what's called utilitarian, meaning you're just trying to get something done. You haven't even demonstrated you know the truth or not. Hmm. So that's why natural theology, which is defining natural theology real quick, natural theology is the study of general revelation. And general revelation is the creation around you. It's history. And it's in contrast to redemption, which is in Scripture. Not, not in contrast like opposition, but contrast right. to those are two different things. And you need redemptive history and, and redemptive revelation in Scripture because you've ignored the works of God in creation and providence. Mm. So even explaining the Christian message and why someone needs Christ requires that you have done that. But here's a problem, and this might make me unpopular in the sense that Isaiah was unpopular. <laughs> the whole book of Isaiah opens up not talking about the Babylonians, not talking about the Egyptians. It opens up by saying, my people don't know me. Mm -hmm. So what if Christians are in a similar condition right now? Mm -hmm. They'll say, oh, yeah, I know God. You should believe in God. I, I believed in Jesus, and I've been happy ever since. I, all my problems are solved. But that's not knowledge, and there's plenty of other religions that will tell you the same thing. Are you in the same condition that the people of God were in Isaiah chapter 1? You don't know God. You mm -hmm. think you do? I mean, because if you would have gone to Israel at the time, and you would have done a poll, and you walk around, and you say, do you know God? Yes. Do you know God? Yes. They would have all said yes, right? Sure. But that's not God's assessment. Mm -hmm. They don't know God. So when we when we think about like being successful in ministry, being successful in missions, being successful at a seminary, we might have to reevaluate our own condition and, and think, you know, maybe we think it's bad in one sense. Maybe it's much worse than we thought. Mm. We thought it was bad because we had one focus, but our focus wasn't God's focus, which is you should have known me and you don't. You're in the same boat as the Babylonians, the Egyptians. They don't seek me and neither do you. Hmm. That's a terrifying That's thought. thought. Think about what Christ says to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. You fools and slow to hear all that's been written. Or his disciples when they're uh, discussing uh, what he meant by beware the leaving of the Pharisees and they think he means, oh, we didn't bring enough bread. He says, <laughs> you have little faith. Do you still not understand? Right. So faith and understanding are connected. There's things you should know, back to the ethics of belief. Mm. So in that case, it was you don't even know what the Messiah was supposed to be. So you're surprised by the resurrection. And in one way, Christians are still like that today. They'll, they'll write libraries of books trying to prove the tomb was empty. But you don't need to do that because you would know that the Messiah wouldn't stay dead. You know that ahead of time. It's not a big surprise. Okay. 
so what you need to do is show who the Messiah is. Once you know it's the Messiah, you know he'd suffer and die and be raised from the dead. You know yeah. that from the Old Testament. Um, so, yeah, there's some things we should know. And, and natural theology is the place where it all begins. Fascinating. And in terms of natural theology, so you can study uh, general revelation, creation. There's so much there, especially, uh, you know, whether it's CU or whether it's at ASU or wherever it is. You know, so many Christians doing good work in, yeah. um, you know, I get, I'll get guys who design spaceships or satellites and, uh, you know, I don't know how that uh, jet propulsion and right. uh, all that stuff. But there's a sense in which even the, the, the realm of physics um, and all that stuff is an area where natural theology can really come to play. Mm-hmm. Here's the extra step, though, I'd add in, because you could have someone who's a, uh, just a strict Epicurean atheist, only atoms exist, do really well designing rockets. The additional step is that this is also the work of God and it displays the wisdom of God. So as you get to know about creation, the laws of physics, you get to understand the wisdom of their creator. And so a lot of people can stop at the first level, just, oh, things work well. If you understand how they work, you can make some other really neat stuff. They don't go beyond that to, and this is reveals the one who made it. But mm-hmm. I mean, we do, it's, it's interesting that it, it does reveal the human condition that we don't do that because we, any other area of life, if you, if you woke up and there was a nice breakfast prepared, there's roses on the table. There's a note that says, Hey, I love you so much. I want you to feel special today. You wouldn't say, Oh, look, after billions of years of blind chance, a breakfast <laughs> came together and uh, a note the letters fell together into the right words to have this English sentence. It's really interesting. No, you'd think your wife did something for you, right? right. So the same thing with, with creation around you, right? Here you have intricately designed universe displaying wisdom. And people say, yeah, probably blind jams. Or probably finite deities who bicker with each other and go to war with each other. Sure. So that's that's the depth of not seeing what's clear, and that's why you need redemption for it. It's not like it's a little philosophical mistake for some people. It's a fundamental problem for the human condition. Right. I've heard it put this way uh, in terms of an apologetic approach. Like it's easier, it's almost easier to um, to tell people about God, preach the gospel to a people who are uh, are. I'm, I'm going to use to say use the phrase less enlightened. But what I mean by that is at least some people believe there are deities in the first place that are warring over the world. Mm-hmm. But there are many people who that's, that's even a stretch. In fact, some, some people in the Academy are more likely to believe uh, that aliens, you know, yeah. well, that's the modern everything. day polytheism. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's just the same exact thing. It, it seems like it's advanced science because you're talking about like spaceships instead of chariots. Sure. But yeah, in, instead of uh, Zeus and, Apollo and Aphrodite, you've got alien civilizations fighting over us. And it's the same idea that you're still stopping at something finite. Yeah. More powerful than me. Although I am working out, so we'll see. (laughs) But finite. Uh, And you're not getting back to what is eternal. That's why I said earlier, that's the fundamental thing about God. Only God has existed from eternity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just did. Let me do a shameless plug. I just did a little, uh, I usually do a weekly devotional. I put it up on my YouTube page, Dr. Owen Anderson. I just did one on David and Goliath. 
because David's usually thought to be an, it's an underdog. It's thought to be an underdog story. So someone in, in a football game, they'll say, this is a David and Goliath story because the underdog won. But really, uh, Goliath's the underdog for this hmm. reason. He challenges the God of Israel, who is Yahweh, I am, the one who's existed from eternity, and challenges him on the basis of his beliefs, which is this guy Baal, who is the same as Zeus and Jupiter, He's the lightning god. He's got, he has a dad. He rebelled against his dad. So the eternal one versus a finite deity with significant moral failings. Like poor, poor Goliath, right? And quote unquote poor, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's not thinking. And his, his failure to think led him into a situation where he challenged the armies of God and he got killed. So there's consequences. Talk about being practical, right? There's yeah. consequences for not thinking. He should have mm. known better than challenge Yahweh. Mm. That's a that's well, a fascinating way to approach that story that I've never thought of. Yeah. So yeah, you think about any any attempt to put something else as eternal in the place of God has that same exact problem. Mm. It's just clearly false. Yeah. I've existed from eternity. Really, you've existed from eternity and this is all you know so far? Well, I forget every time around. Well, an eternal being can't forget, so that mm. proves you're not eternal. Right, yeah. So, so there's all these systems which you might even encounter in Boulder, and, and, they're, and they're, they're without excuse. For sure. Yeah, this is a, it's a fun topic. I think, um, you know, we were on a staff retreat a few years ago, and, and I think Joe Rogan had just released an episode on aliens, um, and not everyone on staff listened to it. I think one person listened to it, and then, it, you know, you kind of text yeah. it out to people. It's and Joe Rogan. Yeah. And so we were all talking about it and it, it really, uh, it shows you the, op the apologetic opportunities with someone like Rogan or someone who listens mm -hmm. to Rogan or even someone like Jordan Peterson, who talks mm -hmm. a lot about, um, these the kind of issues. Man. Yeah. Uh, there's just so many opportunities from natural theology to connect with people. Um, yeah. That we but may... again, that remember my own, my own story began with me wondering how do I know? Hmm. So it wasn't me thinking, how can I persuade those guys? Right. So it's the same thing in Christian ministry. Before you presume that you know and you can teach others, you need to be taught. Yes. And you need to sit at the feet of general relation, so to speak, which is God's creation, to know. Or, or you might be presuming to know and you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then you fall into the category. You go Isaiah 1, my own people don't know me, to the category of the Pharisee, blind guide. Yeah. Gosh, that's a terrifying now, thought. I, I've been going going over Augustine's confessions, and I've posted some of those videos also. And this is why I like about Augustine's confessions is it's a first person kind of discussion later in life, looking back at it, how he got to where he's at. So looking back at his youth, his early education, young adulthood, and all the ways that he tried to avoid God. So for a while, he was what is called a Manichaean dualist. And what that means is he thought there was two kinds of stuff, light stuff and dark stuff, good stuff and evil stuff. And they're both material. So he goes over how he moved away from that and required coming to see that not everything's material, that God's a spirit. God doesn't have a body. And then he had to get into why he needs Christ. You could say maybe God's a spirit, but you don't need redemption. And he goes over the kinds of arguments I've been suggesting. For him, it was realizing matter hasn't always existed and that his own soul hasn't existed and that God 
since God is good, he made the world very good. And so it's a good example of how that thought process works in conversion, right? It wasn't simply, well, I think Christians have a nice community. I'll join them. Or what can this do for me? I'll go, I'll go there. And I got a great job as a bishop. So it uh, worked out for me really well. But the process of going through how do I know what I claim to know? Because that, that's what we want is knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think this question haunts uh, many people, uh, whether they know they're haunted or not by it. But yeah. it really shapes a lot, especially in the American context. And that, that kind of brings us to kind of the, the last thing I want to talk about, uh, at least for this episode. And as someone who kind of teaches on religion in America, there's, there's uh, and I, I would say a, a very uh, strong interest for a lot of people in connecting with something larger than themselves. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not just yeah. an American impulse. That's, you know, that's just a human impulse. Yeah. Um, and it seems like, you know, what, what happened historically here was that there was the notion that we could have a uh, religiously neutral education system in kind of this secular square, this public square where there was a, you know, what's called a separation of church and state. And that would somehow lead to, uh, to kind of this ability to, uh, to stand above it all, to kind of see things as they were. And instead, what we've seen in the last two years is uh, what, I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe them, but very revivalistic movements uh, kind of all over the place from creeds, confessions, uh, kneeling, all, all sorts of embodied practices, uh, chanting, these kind of things that, that just uh, remind me of revivalism. Yeah. Do, do you sense that as well? Yeah, I think so. I think when you study religion in America, you, you see that there's been uh, cycles of revivalism. So we, we might have finished about seven, actually, Billy Graham being the seventh, and maybe we're entering into an eighth one now. But the idea is that religion bec- becomes kind of stale and you need to remind people about what's bad in the world or themselves or the future like hell in order to get them motivated, get them active again. And so you'll have these these cycles that that'll happen and it kind of slowly simmers down, has to happen again. So the idea is you can do something about your condition. Now, that could be made secular also. And so America can have secular revivals, which tell the same kind of story that there's something wrong. There's a whole history that's been broken, and we need to fix it by doing the following. Mm. And so what I've noticed now is there's a a more dramatic distinction between those two, where you have people involved either in a religious revival or a secular revival. And as you said, they're both looking for something bigger than themselves. You want your life to count, to make, to make some contribution while you're here. And to do that, you have to have some story about good and evil and how you're participating on the good side. Now, the problem is knowing what really is good and not just the, the secular meaning just this world. You're focusing on just making this world more comfortable. But, of course, we do die. And that raises questions about what happens to us when we die. And the secular, if we're, if we're counting that as just this world, is silent on that. Mm. They might say, well, we don't know. Maybe you're, that's it, or maybe you go on. But in the meantime, we'll make this life more comfortable for you. So I don't think it's going to speak to those deeper needs that we, we've been discussing this whole time of meaning. 
we need to still make sense of the fact that we die and other people we know die. And we wonder how can that make sense? Are we, are we just animals? Do we have a soul that's, that's immortal that continues on? Do we stay dead or is there a resurrection of the dead? So all those questions are still there. So ultimately I don't think there is neutral education. The idea of separating church and say, I mean, you, maybe if you just said, we're just going to teach people how to read and do math. You can try to get somewhat neutral on those. But as soon as you start answering questions about meaning, mm -hmm. you're not neutral anymore. You're, you're using one system set of assumptions, presuppositions to interpret the world. And so I think for a long time, we haven't noticed that. And it seems like people are starting to notice that and say, no, wait a minute. You're bringing in your assumptions to what was supposed to be neutral education, and I don't agree with your assumptions. So I think as a philosopher, that's actually really exciting. That's exactly what we need education to be, is a place where we debate those basic assumptions. Right. And, and some of them are true and some of them aren't true. Let's figure this out. So I think that's a really exciting thing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a huge opportunity. It, it almost is too, uh, too much to handle in terms of how I think about it. Because I'm like, gosh, I just want to email teachers in my school district. I just want to have conversations. I want to meet with people and be like, but how do you know? And, and why are you teaching that? Yeah. Well, you'll, what you'll see a lot of times, I, I think CU Boulder, uh, their Department of Education, they actually had on their, uh, on their website at one point, I think I took a screenshot in case they took it down. Uh, it was literally, they were, they're trying to train educators to be activists. That's the way yeah, they put that's it. That's pretty standard. Is it? That, yeah, that's very standard. That, that gets the idea that it's a it's an intuition that you can understand, which is you should make the world better. You're not just a consumer. It's it's too it's a, a false economy. People are just consumers. They get a job to buy more stuff on Amazon, and we need to become aware of the problems in our world and help make them better. Okay, mm. I yeah, absolutely. Uh, but again, what do you are you activist for? What do you what are you trying to motivate people to do to to do that? You need to know what is good, right? Yeah. So that's why, again, as a philosopher, I say, yeah, let's, let's, let's be activists. To do that, we got to know what's good. What is good? Yeah. What, uh, and this is kind of the last question I kind of want to end on, because kind of getting down to the, to the uh, brass tacks of it, for, in my estimation, it seems like this uh, school of critical theory, which if you're a listener, um, I've talked with Dr. Grotes from Denver Seminary about critical theory, critical race theory before. Um, and so if you wanted to give kind of, uh, uh, you know, your definition of critical theory, but it, what I'm trying to get at is that it seems that a lot of what is defined as good has been kind of uh, propagated through the lens and through the assumptions of critical theory. Is that would that be fair to say? Well, yeah. And I and I another shameless self-promotion. I have a I did a number of videos this summer when I was up in Boulder yeah. with uh, Michael Plato, who is a professor at uh Colorado Christian, and he has a background studying critical theory and existentialism. So, uh, so we look, he and I did a few videos. I did a few on my own. So if people want to look at my YouTube page, Dr. Owen Anderson, they can see those. So I think the, the idea is critical theory comes out of critical philosophy, which traces to Kant. And the idea is that we need to become aware of how our assumptions shape our knowledge claims. That's a, so that's good, right? People, yeah. are, people are charging along in life and making all sorts of statements and they don't realize that they have assumptions, which are basically like a, a set of eyeglasses and your prescription affects how well you see or not. 
So we need to get those assumptions right. And then critical theory adds, especially a critique of capitalism. The capitalism isn't all that it's made out to be, and it has assumptions about the world which produce inequalities and unfairness that we need to bring out. So again, on that you could say, yeah, that, that seems correct. Let's do that. But you can't stop or import other assumptions, because sometimes what might happen is you end up importing materialist assumptions about the human out of Marxist philosophy, and you critique one set of problematic presuppositions and require people to believe in the dialectic materialism. So let's do it all for everyone. Let's, let's examine everyone's assumptions. That's what I'm for as a philosopher. Get them all out there. Yeah. Uh, we'll study the assumptions of capitalism. We'll study the assumptions of Marxist dialectic materialism. All of them. So for me, again, I think it's kind of exciting time to live in. I agree. Yeah, that's a great way to end it. And I, I think that's a, it's a huge opportunity. And I love the, the way you, you positively uh, see these opportunities. Um, because, uh, you know, it can be very discouraging when you see institutions mm -hmm. that uh, seem to be captured by these ideology like what's the point you know why are we doing it yeah. and so I love the way that you you've uh, really you perceive it as an, a huge opportunity to build conversations connections because ultimately it comes down to the people we're in relationship with the people that we can impact the most and love the most uh, our, our true neighbors um, yeah. a lot of times the the internet That's makes the it seem like from what we were talking about loving God earlier to what it means to actually love your neighbor yeah for sure um, well, cool. Is there, I, you know, we've referenced your YouTube uh, channel, Dr. Owen Anderson. Is there any other yeah. content you want to plug here at the end of the episode? Well, I also, if you go to my YouTube channel, of course, that's free. Got a lot of videos I put up, especially since I'm a professor, you'll notice my videos are usually sort of lecture based. Um, but then I have classes I've put together also for people who are interested on Patreon, which is also just Dr. Owen Anderson. So you can join me on Patreon and get additional videos them that would interest you about showing how showing how to how to know that god exists for example that's great well thanks so much for taking time yeah. today to uh to be with me this was really fun for me and i know our my listeners will really uh really enjoy kind of thinking more deeply on this stuff and um, if you are interested in more of this stuff you can always head over to the resources that dr owen anderson just mentioned um and and share this episode with somebody um uh, to start a conversation because that's what what it's really all about for me is starting more conversations that that lead more people to uh to worship god in their lives so um thanks for this, having me yeah absolutely um we will uh we'll see you next time hopefully we'll have a, another great interview i schedule these week by week and so i'll be texting somebody next week and we'll see what, what happens but uh but until then we'll see you next time